Previously on the British Broadcasting Century. The six-week-old BBC now has four plucky stations. Yes, the Geordies have joined the Cockneys, the Brummies and the Mancunians. Except 5NO Newcastle has had a few teething troubles. No one there's run a radio station before. So on Christmas Eve Eve 1922, their first broadcast is from the back of a lorry in a stable yard. But fear not, with Christmas behind us, head office are on the case. And the BBC's first and only general manager, John Reith, is well rested. He's even asked a friend what broadcasting is. And he reckons he's okay to take control. He's always liked fishing. That's what broadcasting is, isn't it? He doesn't have a clue, to be honest. This time, still puzzling out what his job is, John Reith begins work. We've got all the info on his legendary first day, his Dr Livingstone, I presume, moment, and his first task of running the Beeb, fixing Newcastle. Not the entire city, just his station there. He seeks to inform, educate and entertain, but first he must troubleshoot. Plus, bang up to date, we'll be hearing from a man with radio in his very fibre, local radio executive editor and presenter from BBC Radio Sussex and BBC Radio Surrey and Susie Radio and Way Valley Radio. He can't keep away. Mark Carter. I turned up up to Mount Brown in Guildford the other week, the headquarters of South Police, slightly unplanned, slightly last minute, but I ended up interviewing the Prime Minister. But what I was able to do was ask the Prime Minister about specific issues affecting local people in the Surrey area. And who else increasingly is going to hold those people in authority to account on a local level? It, 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 the newspapers, sadly, there are fewer local newspapers, there are fewer local commercial radio stations. So I think there's a really important part there with the local ticket as well. As we mark the start of the Reef era, buckle up. It's going to be a bumpy ride here on the British Broadcasting Century. Hello, hello. This is Paul Carenza calling. This is London Calling. Ah, hello, hello, PK Calling. Are we coming through? Clearly, I do hope so. Welcome to the podcast telling the origin story of British broadcasting, which at the point we're up to is essentially uh, the BBC. There wasn't much other broadcasting about in the early 1920s, but we will get to non-Beeb British broadcasting, I'm sure. Just need to wait for Pirate Radio, Radio Luxembourg, ITV. Eh, we've got a long way to go just yet. Now, don't forget, this is not made by the BBC. I do work occasionally for the BBC, but this is not commissioned by, sanctioned by, in any way approved by, officially, the present-day BBC. Clear? Oh, I sounded like a hospital drama there, like Holby City. I do know we have various listeners who do work, or, or have worked, or will work for either Auntie Beeb or the independent broadcasters. Hello to you if that's you. Do get in touch if so. Be on the podcast. Tell us a little bit about your origin story in broadcasting yourself. It's always nice to hear from listeners, always nice to hear from those who've worked in broadcasting. In fact, here's a couple that I've spoken to this week in different ways. Hello, hello to Paul Carter. Now, I met Paul on a Zoom call this week to do with the job I'm doing at the moment. And Paul Carter greeted me, Shay Zoom, with the words, hello, hello, am I coming through clearly? Of course, I did not pick up the reference that this was actually a nod to those early radio broadcasts. So I said, yes, you are coming through clearly, before realising that actually he had listened to the podcast. So hello, hello, Paul. You are indeed coming through clearly, eventually, when my brain kicks in. Paul Carter has listened from early days on this podcast, especially on dog walks, he tells me. So hello, hello to any listeners who have this in their ears on dog walks. And you might want to mind your step. Oh, you've trodden in it. He claims also to be the only producer ever to get the archers onto local radio. Hmm, that is a tale that I want to hear. Paul Carter, you're welcome on the podcast. No relation to Mark Carter, by the way, who is on the podcast this week. 
Another delightful connection I had this week was with Laura Trenier and family. Now, Laura is daughter of Justin Phillips, a man sadly no longer with us, the former BBC head of Heritage. Now, I wish I'd met Justin. I think we have a lot in common. He wrote a book called C.S. Lewis at the BBC. Get your copy now. Still available online, I believe. As you'd expect from the head of Heritage, Justin Phillips had quite a collection of books, cuttings, general archive loveliness. And Justin's wife, Laura's mum, Jill, she's moving house. Would we at the British Broadcasting Century podcast be interested in glancing at, having, borrowing, long-term loaning of much of the archive collection of BBC head of heritage, Justin Phillips? Oh, yes, we would. So thank you, Laura and Jill and family. I have a huge box that I've barely dipped a toe into so far, but we will, and I will bring you all the marvellous details as our story continues on here. The collection includes staff lists from the 1940s at the BBC, photos of Dorothy L. Sayers at the Beeb, a pretty complete collection of BBC yearbooks, loads of copies of The Listener and The Radio Times from the 40s, And here's one thing I've put on our Twitter and Facebook pages, the legendary Green Book. This is the BBC Variety Programme's policy guide for writers and producers, 1948 edition. It's what you can and can't say on air. So, for example, jokes built around Bible stories, e.g. Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, David and Goliath, must be avoided or any sort of parody of them. References to a few biblical characters, e.g. Noah, are sometimes permissible, but since there is seldom anything to be gained by them, and since they can engender much resentment, they are best avoided altogether. Reference to and jokes about different religions or religious denominations are banned. The following are also inadmissible. Jokes or comic songs about spiritualism, christenings, religious ceremonies of any description, e.g. weddings, funerals, parodies of Christmas carols. Now that's worrying for me because I do parodies of Christmas carols in my annual seasonal stand-up show, Comedy and Carols. So clearly that wouldn't make it on the BBC in 1948. Jokes about AD or BC, e.g. before Crosby. Now, having posted that on Twitter, we had a reply from Yaka Bartol, who's at Media History Now, and he says, uh, the late historian Tony Jutt uh, mentioned this booklet and its prohibitions in his history of post-war Europe. So this is a quote from Tony Jutt's book. Uh, jokes about religion were forbidden, as we've just heard, as was the description of old-fashioned musical taste as BC, before Crosby. So that before Crosby thing, yeah, that was a thing at the time that delineated old-fashioned musical with your modern-day broadcast crooning, broadcast crooning, another BC there, because, yeah, Bing Crosby... Bing Crosby, yet another BC. ...did rather revolutionise how you can actually sing via technology. No more Al Jolson distance back-of-the-room belting. Now it could be up-close radio crooning. Tony Judd continues, There were to be no references to lavatories, no jokes about effeminacy in men. Writers were forbidden to use jokes that had become popular in the relaxed ambience of the war, or make suggestive double entendre allusions to ladies' underwear, as in winter draws on. <clears throat> Sexual allusions of any kind were banned. There was to be no talk of rabbits or such-like animal habits. Well, I'm sure the BBC today continues to maintain such standards. So anyway, that's just one part of one page explored from the collection of Justin Phillips, former BBC head of Heritage. Thank you again to Jill and Laura and the family for sharing that with us. Meanwhile, we need to get underway in our story of the week on this podcast. We're at the tail end of 1922, not just the end of a year, but it's the end of the beginning at the Beeb. We've seen a few episodes ago how Reith and Burroughs, Anderson and Lewis were all hired as the first four founding fathers at the BBC. 
but they start work at New Year. So at this point, we're looking at late December 1922, the last days of the old guard. Of course, the broadcasting is continuing, but without much of a working head office at this point. I'm going to tell you all about Reith's first day this episode, December the 29th. And next episode, we'll round off the year with a rather sweet New Year's Eve bit of programming from 1922. And then we will start 1923 proper, when the BBC exploded into life with a booming staff, the first proper live concerts from the Royal Opera House, and so much more. What a tale. What an era. I wish I was there. I can't be. So next best thing, I will spend a pandemic researching and recording this. The British Broadcasting Century, now with the first day of work from John Reith. But before he starts in London, we're going to get super geeky, super detailed. I will actually tell you about Reith's journey to London. Yep, his commute to head office was actually really notable too. Having been appointed as general manager of the BBC, and he spent a couple of days with Burroughs and co before Christmas, he scouted for offices, and now Reith has spent Christmas in Scotland, staying with his mum. For the first 22 years of the century, my home was in Scotland, and for all but the last three, it was in the College Church Manse in Glasgow. I told her that I wanted her to live to see me a knight anyhow. I feel if this job succeeds and I am given grace to succeed in it, I might not be so far off this. I do want a title for dear mother's sake and Muriel's. That's his wife and that diary entry from the 28th of December 1922. So he's keen on this job for the authoritative position it gives him. That seems to be the overriding impetus for him to start at the BBC, at least to begin with. That moral code, that urge to be a public guardian of broadcasting, that will come in the new year. I imagine once he's actually puzzled out what this thing is. When I went from Scotland to the BBC, having to explain what the initials BBC meant, and before long, what the BBC itself stood for, I took a great deal of what a Scottish home and a manse at that could give. My fault that I didn't take much more. Really, Reith just wants to lead. He's turned down good deputy jobs before this point. He just wanted to lead something, anything, even a thing he does not understand. And I like to think that there's a link between the BBC and a nursery in a house at the top of Linder Street at the beginning of the century. Here's a snapshot of what Reith would have been completely unaware was on that Christmas on each of the BBC's stations. Well, we told you all about the London Christmas last time, but from Boxing Day you would hear more from the brand new 2-0 orchestra, a triumphant Boxing Day Peter Pan, Uncle Jeff and Uncle Arthur holding the fort, rewarded with many gifts from listeners. Demand for radio sits outstripped supply. The radio boom was booming. Meanwhile in Birmingham, Percy Edgar gives his dickens, artists don't turn up because it's Christmas, there's a call out on air, so Frederick Warrender turns up with his pianist. In Manchester, there are Christmas stories for the kiddies, then grown-ups have Handel's Messiah and ghost stories. And in Newcastle, the new kid on the block, there's a Hawaiian band. Then of course there's 2MT Riddle with Peter Eckersley, they've had the week off for Christmas. That's not a BBC station, but of course they've done the groundwork earlier in the year, set British broadcasting going. And at this point, Peter Eckersley is there pondering whether he should keep going in this Marconi station out there in a field in Essex. Now that proper broadcasting has begun and the big boss John Reith is on his way to start work. Any day now, Peter Eckersley will go and visit John Reith to puzzle out what to do with Rittle, but we'll have that on a future episode. 
Friday, December the 29th, 1922, is the day which I'm most inclined to associate with the beginning. On this day I rose at 6.30am, on the threshold of the highlands. I remember quite well the evening before, hoping that in the dim light of the morning I might be able to catch a last sight of the Grampian Spur not so far away. It was dark and cold. It was a nice house which I was leaving behind, and to those considerations were added a good deal of uncertainty as to that to which I was going, and as to how things generally were going to work out. Reith says, bye mum, I'll come back when I'm knighted, and he leaves Dunardock for London, raring to start work the next day, it's a Saturday, but he wanted to get in before his small staff turns up after the weekend. Also, I was not even going direct to London. Arthur Burroughs had sent me a telegram asking if I would go via Newcastle and see some of the preliminary arrangements there and interview the suggested station director. Burroughs has asked John Reith, his boss, to make a stopover en route to Magnet House to get off the train at Newcastle and check in on the baby station, 5NO. We talked about their launch last time, having a few teething troubles. So at this point, it's only five days old. It's the first BBC station to be built from scratch. Burroughs has had his doubts about the Newcastle staff. New station director Tom Payne is out on a limb, setting up this new station in the northeast with the smallest, most abandoned staff. Probably adding to Burroughs' doubts were Tom Payne's announcing habits. I did the announcing from the very first. He kept repeating the call sign over and over. This is 5NO calling. This is 5NO calling. This is 5NO calling. This is 5NO calling. Yeah, that could get a little bit annoying. Tom Payne was popular locally in amateur radio circles, but would he have the chops to broadcast nationally on the radio to fit in with what Arthur Burroughs had set in motion? So Reith's a bit reluctant to break his journey in Newcastle. He doesn't quite see why. He doesn't quite know what a radio station is, and he doesn't quite know what he can bring to the proceedings. I hardly knew what a station was or what was required of a station director. It did not take long to learn. But he's quite keen to see one in action. Although, as we said, Newcastle's version of a radio station is a stable yard to begin with, not your typical radio station. Newcastle at 12.30. Here I really began my BBC responsibility. Saw transmitting station and studio place and landlords. It was very interesting. Still, Reith is dumbfounded. He's got off the train. He's found Tom Payne alternating between announcing what's on the radio, playing some live music instruments, and trying to shut up a howling dog in a nearby kennel. So, did he let Mr Payne off the hook? Someone or other had apparently promised that the Newcastle transmitter would begin its operations on December the 24th, which it had. It appeared to me, therefore, that the station director had more or less chosen himself, and that I had either to confirm him in his office, or create a position of some difficulty by ejecting him. As the temporary station director knew more than I did, as he had produced programmes of some kind or another for five days already, I rather naturally left him in possession for the time being. But seeing the crude setup, Reith really wondered what he let himself in for here. And here's the man Reith was meeting, Tom Payne. And when Mr. Reith came up for this interview, he said to me, Mr. Payne, when we're going to the station, he says, what are you doing for money? I said, well, I'm paying out of the Payne and Hornsby banking account, my own. And uh, I claim that I'm the only individual that ever kept a broadcasting station running out of his own pocket. And that is the truth. So there you have it. Tom Payne, the only person who single-handedly kept a BBC station going from his own pocket. And he's the one in charge in Newcastle for now. More in about 10 episodes time of how he didn't last too long there to be replaced by a superbly popular station boss in Newcastle. But that's all yet to come. 
As for the tech setup in Newcastle, that does not improve too quickly. Reith will be shocked in the new year of 1923 to discover that their control room in Newcastle is in fact a standard public phone box installed in the middle of the studio. Forget the engineer through the glass, this was an engineer in the glass, in a glass box, closed in from before the programme started until after it finished. No ventilation, no seat, no dignity. Now come January, Reith would personally seek new premises for those provincial stations that were lacking. It would just take some time. Away at 4.28, London at 10.10, bed at 12. For now, though, on December the 29th, 1922, Reith leaves Newcastle after a stopover of less than four hours, and he continues to London. So more on Reith's first day in Magnet House in London shortly. First, though, we like to mix up the old story of the Beeb with its current occupants. Today's tales of broadcasters and programme makers. And this episode, we've got a real radio hound for you. Several decades into his radio career, Mark Carter has hosted goodness knows how many hours of radio shows, interviewed thousands of stars, politicians and everyday folk as well, and treated them all the same. Doesn't say here whether that's with utmost respect or pure contempt. Let's assume it's the former. He's run stations, he's done breakfast, drive time. I'm guessing he's done every time slot on the clock. BBC Radio Sussex, BBC Radio Surrey, Way Valley Radio. He's got radio in his bones. Mark Carter is here. Where did it all start for you? And do you indeed have radio in your bones? I think I do have radio in my bones and I don't quite know why. I can remember when I was little, I used to have the transistor radio. I'm making myself sound so old here, but I used to have a transistor radio Excellent. and I would wait for the opening of Radio 1 each morning and I'd be listening there about 5.30 in the morning and I kind of knew it was what I always wanted to do and it kind of went from there. I, I don't really know how I've managed to get to the point I'm at now and there were times when I thought I would never do it, but I've loved every bit of it. Fantastic. Oh, to be honest, on this podcast, you're only old. If it's not a transistor, it's a crystal set radio. So uh, then I'm very one young. Of, one of these Johnny Come Lately's, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, so when you were, were you one of these people then who, as a kid, were you know you'd listen to the radio and you think then like I'd like to do this and and do you do you ever do you remember ever trying it at home or was it those things that you sort of how did you then get that passion for it? Listen, I did all the embarrassing stuff. So I did shows in my bedroom. I would take jingles from radio stations and I would try and desperately move from the cassette player to the LP and uh, seamlessly uh, have a link to join those two things together. Uh, I was always listening to the radio. So my parents had the radio on a lot. My mum particularly had the radio on in the kitchen when I was very little. And I think that kind of got me hooked into it. But I was really fascinated by the presentation side of things. I was was in a way the music got in a way at times because mm. the best bit about radio for me when I was little was what the presenters were doing how they were saying it the jingles that they were using uh, to move from one thing to the next I, I do love a bit of a jingle and so it was all of that stuff that, that came together in the early days for me and so the sort of thing I was doing at the age of around 12, 11 or 12, something like that, probably younger actually, was uh, a bit of Radio Lollipop, so the, the kids' hospital radio station. And again, I think back to that time, it was when uh, Radio Lollipop was based at St. Hel uh, it wasn't at St. Helier's, it was at Queen Mary's Hospital uh, for Children, which is no longer there in Carshorton. And I cycled up with my friend and we literally just turned up. It was very odd looking back on what I did. Uh, but again, we were invited in, we had a look at the radio station and we did a special show the following week. I did a bit of other hospital radio stuff. I did some charity radio stuff, but always in the back of my mind, could I make a career out of this? And I knew it was highly competitive. 
And I never gave up on it, clearly, because I'm here today doing what I'm doing. But but it's a tough road and you've really got to stick at it. And you kind of have to knock on quite a few doors and get the door slammed before you mm. actually make your way through. Yeah, wow. Yeah, it's, it's reminds me, my, my son, he's 10, and he found, well, I found for him online about a year ago, um, the Wise Buddha jingles, they're all there for the, the Radio 2 jingles. And suddenly he's like, oh, wow, I can just play all of them. And, uh, you know, for, for fun, he's there timing his thing online on 88 to 91 FM on digit, all that sort of thing. Um, uh, you know, for his school radio station, but nicking their ones. So, uh, let me, let me tell it, you a quick anecdote on that. Yeah. So, uh, Broadcasting House, there was uh, an anniversary for BBC Radio, I can't remember which one it was. And I took my friend up who, who wasn't interested in radio, wasn't obsessed with it like I was. And there was this really great thing you could do in broadcast. First of all, I was in Broadcasting House, yeah, and I was wow. really young. And they said, you can have a go at talking up to the intro and you could pick a song. And it was Richard Marks and Hazard. Nice. And if you listen to that song, it's got quite a long intro. Mm. And I talked right up to the vocals and they said, it's as if you've done that before. And inside, <laughs> my heart was racing because there I was. I was king of the radio. I was at Radio 1. I wasn't on Radio 1, but I was at Radio 1. And I was showing that I could talk up to the vocals. Wow, that was a great moment. Wow, there you go. 93, I'm guessing, if it's Hazard, something like that. I'm trying to work out the dating right now. That's right. Uh, so uh, so then you become a presenter. And then, of course, I mean, nowadays you're also running radio stations. But for a while, then, presumably, you were presenting and didn't have all of that other, those other layers uh, to be focused on as well. How is that doing the presenting thing and then making that jump as well to actually looking after radio stations? Yeah, uh, so I ended up almost giving up on it and thinking I wouldn't get a break to do radio full time. And I went down a very odd route of becoming a trained financial advisor. And I did that for quite a while. And but still, there was something in the back of my mind saying, I want to do this. And I ended up turning up a radio station. Most of the radio stations I've worked at in the past have now gone, which maybe says something about me. <laughs> uh, but I turned up at a radio station, most bizarre setup ever, at Eurotunnel in Folkestone, and it was called Channel Travel Radio. And at that radio station, it was literally aimed at people making their way along the M20 to go across to France, be it on a ferry or on the Eurotunnel. And uh, I have a degree in French. So I thought, well, this is the perfect opportunity. They want somebody who's bilingual and I can speak in English and French on the radio. And I went along. Uh, the manager who I'm still in touch with was very lovely, but said, this is ridiculous. I will pay you virtually nothing to come and do this. And you're earning quite good money as a financial advisor. So we reached a compromise that one day a week I would work for her and they would pay me. And this was a first step in. And that if a few months down the line, I was still liking it, she would give me a job. And I was still liking it. And I carried on. My French, by the way, was really bad, but that's another story. And I did actually financial advising and radio broadcasting simultaneously for a couple of years. So wow. I would literally work at a bank and then I'd head off to the radio station. So when I worked to Channel Travel Radio in Folkestone, I'd then come back up towards uh, the Surrey and South London area to work for a bank. And then I went on to Neptune Radio, which was a station along the Channel Coast. So places like Dover and Folkestone and Hyde, beautiful part of the world. And I was doing the evening show there. Uh, but I also was asked to read the news in the afternoon. And truth be told, I'd never read news. I had no idea what I was doing. But it was very much a, a small hands-on radio station where you learnt as you went along. And so I became pretty proficient in being able to write news copy and uh, do news interviews and so on. And that was actually an incredibly useful skill that I gained there because 
from then on, not only was I marketing myself as a presenter, which was what most people want to do, but I was also a journalist, uh, a broadcast journalist. And so I could read news bulletins, I could produce programs. And so the other commercial radio work that I then went on to do, as well as presentation, which I loved, first love, always loved being on air, but I could also read the news. So when I went to Star FM in Berkshire, uh, I co-presented Breakfast there. And eventually I arrived at the BBC and I turned up at BBC Southern Counties Radio, as it was in Guildford. And I, I took on a job, weirdly, as a breakfast producer. And, and I really didn't have much experience as a breakfast producer, but they liked the fact that I'd done some stuff in commercial radio. And you can see that I'm getting this pattern of having done a bit of everything in my career. Mm, mm. And sooner or later, then that led to an opportunity for what was then called Head of Programmes. I applied. I've got to tell you here, I was the, the rank outsider. Uh, but the, the, the boss at the time liked the fact that I brought with me lots of different skills and experiences from, from commercial radio, as well as what I'd done in the BBC. And, and the rest is history. So I, I was head of programmes. I was a news editor at uh, the BBC. Then I was the assistant editor. And now I've got this very grandiose title of executive editor. So I look across Sussex and, and Surrey in terms of the BBC. But, but the great thing about all of those roles that I've had is that along the way, I've carried on with that first love of presenting. So I presented the drive show in Surrey for five years. I did a year on the BBC Radio Surrey Breakfast Show, which I absolutely loved. And I still present a Saturday breakfast show on BBC Radio Sussex. And so, yeah, every step of the way, I've kept my hand in with the first love, but it's brilliant. I genuinely love leading a team because you're now watching, I'm now watching lots of people progress in their careers. And I, I get a genuine buzz from that. More from Mark soon, but a century earlier, John Reith has arrived in London at 10 past 10 at night, bed at 12, slept off his train journey, and he's awoken ready for his first day at the BBC. I'm trying to keep in close touch with Christ in all I do, and I pray he may keep close to me. I have a great work to do. Of course I had a good many problems to decide, the chief being for whose benefit and how to get the greatest benefit, but that's another matter altogether. Introducing what's next, here's the first Birmingham boss, Percy Edgar. At nine o'clock in the morning of December the 30th, 1922, a very tall Scotsman walked into the BBC doorway in London. Oh, it's a momentous moment. Like all moments are, all momentous moments anyway. At 9am, John Reith arrives at the General Electric offices in Kingsway, London. Where I had been informed temporary accommodation had been at our disposal. This is Magnet House, first offices of the BBC. John Reith has doubts what he'll find. He's pleased to see a large notice in the foyer, British Broadcasting Company, second floor. This was rather reassuring. One was therefore not altogether unexpected, and there really was such a thing as the BBC. Before I was permitted to enter the elevator, an inquiry was naturally made regarding my business. BBC, I said deliberately. Nobody there yet, sir, he replied. So I told him that this was it, or part of it, one quarter approximately. How delightfully droll of both Reith and the liftsman. As he bore me upwards, I detected a sorrowful curiosity in his veiled scrutiny. He was very polite. He conducted me to a door already labelled BBC, which he opened for me with some ceremony. I entered, the door shut, and I heard his footsteps echoing along the corridor. A wild thought came to me that I would hail him and bid him loose me once again, but I heard the clang of his iron gate. It was too late. 
The lift man showed him up to an office, no one there. A chair, a table, telephone, empty desk. The tall man, whose name was John Reith, was left there alone. The newly appointed managing director of the BBC had arrived. One of the early BBC governors who arrived a few years later, Mary Agnes Hamilton. When he, 32 years old, presented himself at what were to be the offices of the embryonic broadcasting company as its general manager, he found only a table and a chair. And a position summed up in the remark, we're leaving it all to you. That was in 1922. By 1932, when I came to know it, Broadcasting House was a national institution, and so was Sir John. I felt at the time that contact with this phenomenon, whatever else it might be, would be interesting. Here was someone, markedly and patently, not of the common run. Someone one couldn't have invented. An original. John Reith paced around, surveyed the premises, and found the room 30 feet by 15, furnished just with long tables and a few chairs. There's a door at the very far end that he said, Invited examination. It gave on to a sort of powder closet, six feet square. This, I said, is the general manager's office. And the door swung to... He found a telephone, which reassured him of contact with the outside world. He put his hat, coat and umbrella on the window ledge of his tiny little closet office, and he wedged open the door. He sat down at his desk and set about his great work. For here was a man who knew where broadcasting was going. Unfortunately, he said, I had read all the papers before, and there was no point in pretending to be busy when there was no one there to see. It's an unusual start for Reith then, still a little clueless as to what's required of him. He needs his staff there to arrive before he can quite figure out how to lead them, how to run this BBC. So he picks up the phone, a bit like Manuel when he briefly takes charge of Faulty Towers. Manuel Towers, how are you today? Or Alan Partridge picking up the hotel phone to find his reach to reception. In Reith's case, he's delighted that a female voice answers the telephone. Having been unexpectedly answered, I tried hurriedly to think of a number which at 9.15am, on a Saturday, bear in mind, I might probably be expected to call up on BBC Business, naturally without success, as there was no BBC Business to do anything with. So I inquired somewhat fatuously and with some embarrassment if she had had any instructions about calls for the BBC, or from them, and that if so, the BBC was there. And that reception would connect many calls to Reith over the coming months and years, Miss Isabel Shields. Now, 15 minutes later, Reith has a guest. Well, his first employee. It was about 9.30 when the outer door opened, and a gentleman appeared with some manifestation of authority, an air of being where he had a right to be, a silk hat, two attaché cases, and several legal-looking books under his arm. The secretary, I thought. The general manager, he thought. Or at least I hope so. Somewhat like Livingstone and Stanley, we each presumed, and that was that. Reith did not take to Anderson the secretary, and he would not last long there. Not a BBC person. Conversation was not brisk, and had already flagged when the door opened again, and a cheery individual entered and introduced himself as Gamage, secretary of the GEC, you know. Mr Gamage was very welcoming to Reith and the new BBC, it seems. Although he had no real connection to the BBC, he was secretary to the General Electric Company, one of the radio manufacturers who helped form the BBC. Mr Gamage offered anything they wanted for the duration of their stay there, which would last several months, offering comfort and consolation, so Reith says, and assistance, and achieved things with astonishing celerity and success, but consistently turned down any recompense. 
We made persistent offers to be allowed to pay for our room, for our lunch, our tea, for our telephone calls, but all were as persistently declined by Mr Gamage and his chairman, Sir Hugo Hurst. The General Electric Company, by all sounds of it, were superb hosts for the first four months of the BBC. So that night, Major Anderson, the secretary, goes home, and there he types a letter to invite Miss Isabel Shields, that receptionist, to stop working for General Electric and be poached by the BBC, becoming one of the first six staff members. And, yep, the first female employee. As for the closing days of 1922, then, we'll find out more next time. Well, many employees later, many years later, many stations later, Mark Carter of BBC Radio Sussex and BBC Radio Surrey picks up his tale. I can't think of what else I would do, genuinely. You know, I took a pay cut to go and do that first job full-time in radio because that was what I wanted to do. And so I have involvements now alongside my kind of main job with the BBC. I do work for community radio stations. So I'm involved with Wave Valley Radio and Susie Radio, which is another community station. And, and I pre-record programmes for them each week. And every now and again, my wife will say to me, could you just maybe stop doing one of these things and <laughs> maybe come home and eat? And, uh, and I, 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 you know, I have a good family life balance. I do genuinely have that. But I do pack a lot into the week, but I love doing it. And I, I just get a, a buzz from doing that. And uh, so so somewhere like Wave Valley Radio, weirdly, I was involved in the first Wave Valley before it kind of disappeared and was eaten up by a big conglomerate. And it's been such a joy to see that come back to life again in, in Alton and the northeast Hampshire area. And I'm really proud to be involved with that. And I'm a director of Wave Valley Radio. And again, so we have board meetings. I mean, honestly, I don't know anything about board meetings. But I go along <laughs> to these meetings and uh, it's great, again, to watch that station develop and the people on that radio station develop with, with, with as, as the station grows, that the team grows and their skills grow with it as well. I better not keep you because you've got another five radio stations to run by the end of today, you know. But um, but I, I started that in Hospital Radio Way, uh, so similar sort of yep. area. But again, just seeing that, lo- the real personal connection, you can see the difference when you're meeting the listeners and seeing, you know, you know the knowing the area so well. So on which then, you know, national is all very well. But for me, it does feel like local radio it, it's math, radio matters so much more i think when it's when it's local and and especially i know that many things that bbc radio sussex bbc radio surrey have been doing make a difference campaigns uh, the heroes awards uh, can you tell us a little bit about those sort of elements that local is is really so important for radio isn't it yeah i think so and i know that there are fewer commercial radio stations doing the local thing these days so i think if if ever there was a an important part for bbc local radio and for community radio to play it is now and what we do in sussex and surrey and it's replicated around the, the, the bbc local radio network is we connect with communities. So we've run a brilliant campaign recently, uh, which is an ongoing campaign called Make a Difference. Uh, And as the name suggests, it really does make a difference. It it came up at the start of the COVID pandemic and we were there pointing people in the direction of support when they needed it. And we've been there collecting unwanted sports kit recently in a campaign called Kid Out the Nation. So it's more than just kind of the local news and the local travel. It's a genuine thing of being at the heart of the local community as well. And uh, the, tr- the same is true as well of community radio. I think uh, we play a really important part with stations like Wave Valley or with Suzy, where they will know their audience better than anybody else. They literally will know the name of the person who runs the news agent at the end of the street. And that to me is a really special thing. 
Thank you, Mark. A joy to chat. And I should say thank you for the work as well, because Mark is essentially my boss at BBC Radio Sussex and BBC Radio Surrey, where I occasionally present Sunday Breakfast. So a delight to chat to him about his radio story here. As for the story of radio, the big story continues next time. Now, Reith has his feet under the table. From the earliest days, it has been our resolve that the great possibilities and influences of the medium should be exploited to the highest human advantage. It matters little in what order one puts its various functions. The service as a whole has been and is dedicated to the best interests of mankind. Next time, it's time for the programme makers to see off the year in style. The first BBC New Year's Eve, complete with Piper and Old Lang Syne and Big Ben's bongs. Well, not yet, but we will get there eventually. Now, two books have helped form the backbone of this episode. Reith's Diaries, edited by Charles Stewart, and Gary Allegan's 1938 biography, Sir John Reith. I've got my copy here. Mine is actually signed by John Charles Walsham Reith. So I've got a feeling that my copy was his copy, the man himself. Well, thank you for listening. Thank you for sharing what we do here on the podcast and on the Facebook and Twitter pages. Thank you for supporting us on Patreon or coffee.com if you have or if you will. Thank you to our guest, Mark Carter. And thank you again to Jill Phillips and family for access to the archive of Justin Phillips, former head of heritage at the BBC. If you have any dusty old broadcasting history books, memorabilia, artefacts, get in touch. Maybe just take a photo and share them on our Twitter and Facebook pages if you prefer. They don't have to leave your house. It all helps add to this story. As you may know, I'm also working on a book about all of this, a novel, and a one-man play that I'm hoping to tour around in 2022 about the first voices of British broadcasting. I'm also pitching around the TV drama and the radio drama and maybe a musical and possibly a children's book. The British Broadcasting Century is presented and produced by me, Paul Carenza. Original music is composed by Will Farmer. Archive clips are either public domain, being over 50 years old, or they're someone else's domain. So I tip my hat to them, whether it's the Reith family, the original broadcasters themselves, or the BBC. The bits that are the BBCs are used with kind permission. BBC copyright content reproduced courtesy of the British Broadcasting Corporation. All rights are reserved. Stay informed, educated and entertained. And join us next time for New Year's Eve 1922 on the British Broadcasting Century.